Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, April 15th, 2021. It is not tax day. Uh, tax day has been postponed for a month. Uh, at least one knew that the Ides of April were the most nightmarish day of the calendar year for many people. And now that has apparently been been postponed because of the pandemic. So it's just another ordinary day. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Christine Rosen still out, and joining us today is uh, National Affairs Editor and uh, American Enterprise Institute uh, Pangendrum, Yuval Levin. Um, thanks for coming, Yuval. Thanks, thanks for, for being here. Me. Not you. You didn't come anywhere except to your to your own basement, I think. But uh, that's true. Thanks for coming to my basement. Uh, you're 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 very welcome. And um, Yuval, you know, you you wrote a piece for commentary in 2016 uh, that formed one of the uh, formative ideas, let's say, of your of your uh, most recent book. And the, the piece was called, um, piece was called Congress is Weak Because Its Members Want It to Be. And uh, right now, we were just discussing how the Democratic Congress, uh, the theory of that piece was that, uh, Republicans in particular are using Congress as a platform rather than as a uh, body to get things done, uh, to make themselves stars, and we can go into some of that. But we were just discussing how you have the the, the smallest uh, margin in uh, recent political history uh, in the House, Democrats uh, up by six, five or six in the House, depending on how you count it, uh, and yet they are going absolutely hog wild uh, with legislation. We have uh, just today, we hear they are going to put up a bill to expand the Supreme Court to 13 from nine. Um, various other things we should get to uh, get to in detail. So I'm wondering, is the Congress is weak because its members want it to be a species of Republican governance? Because of course the modern Republican Party does not, is not like in love with, legislation and doing lots of things, but that this is not true of the Democrats who want institutionally to take Congress and use it to force major changes on government and American society. Well, you know, I wouldn't really say so. I I think what they're doing is passing messaging bills that because they have this tiny majority, they're trying to treat as though they were substantive bills. The the Republicans did that too. The the Republican House, if you look at what the House passed in the first couple of years of the Trump administration, or what the House passed when you had a divided Congress in the Obama years, you would say, well, that's a pretty ambitious agenda. But they did that knowing it was going nowhere. And the Democrats here, they certainly want to pretend that the only thing holding them back is the filibuster, and the filibuster has got to be destroyed. But they don't have 50 votes for any of these things. And they don't have- In the Senate, right? In the Senate, Yeah. yeah. So there are actually not a lot of things for which you could muster 50 votes, but not 60 right now. So it's simply not the case that all, you know, all this focus on the filibuster is a way to avoid saying they don't have the votes to pass any of what they want. But in the meantime, the House, in very narrowly partisan ways, is able to pass some of these kinds of messaging bills. And then the Democrats try to treat that as an agenda and say, we're being held back and this is what the public wants and all that. But the fact is, this is the narrowest congressional majority that we've seen in our lifetimes. It's a divided Senate, a, an evenly divided Senate, 
And the last time we saw that was after the 2000 election, but Republicans then had a bigger House majority than the Democrats do now. Uh, and what Republicans did then was pass a variety of basically compromise bills on education, on Medicare, uh, even the Republican tax bill got some Democratic votes. What the Democrats are doing instead, and all after all this talk of unity and the rest of it, and a president who spent 50 years in the Senate, um, is passing messaging bills that will amount to nothing. And I think they can feel like they're getting a lot done for the moment. But when you step back and, and look at what will be achieved here, it's hard to see that how any of this could get done. And all they're doing is frustrating themselves and getting people angry at Joe Manchin, when in fact what they need are more Joe Manchins so they could have more of a majority in the Senate. I mean, that, of course, is the interesting uh, takeaway from the 2018, 2019, 2020, after the 2018 elections, when Democrats took the House back. Uh, very much like as in 2006, when Democrats took the House back uh, during the second term of, of, of George W. Bush, they did so by finding candidates who tacked to the center in 2006. As you'll remember, because I think you were working in the White House then, mm. uh, what what um, what Chuck Schumer, who was running the uh, House re-election effort, did was go out and find as many veterans, as many uh, Democrats who liked gun who liked guns, uh, uh, pro-life Democrats as he could stick in districts where there were favorable opportunities for Democratic pickups and take a most most uh, notably, I think, uh, Kristen Gillibrand. Yeah. Uh, who was uh, in 2006 a uh, former uh, was a Morgan Stanley banker who was pro-life and uh, and and opposed to gun control, uh, as as compared to the trans candidate of 2019. Um, so there there was that, and then in 2018 they picked as the, Noah detailed uh, all all year uh, in 2018 they picked these candidates who were running very specific local, you know, sort of issues, healthcare, fixing healthcare, doing stuff like that, while representing themselves as being a kind of a, a counterforce to, to Donald Trump. And yet when, when they mentioned him at all, right. it was sort of a subtext of that election. Right. So they win 40 seats. And then who becomes the dominating congressional figures of 2019 or in 2019, 2020? Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, uh, uh, Ayanna Presley. And um, and Ilhan Omar, uh, this uh, four these four freshmen uh, minority, you know, uh, representing minorities who represented an ideological minority within the force that got the Democrats back the House, and yet you would think that they were the ones who who run the House. So we're in a, it's a very weird situation because if the Senate needs Joe Manchin's, what the House needs is more. Uh, I don't know what who who you would who you would cite as the sort of uh, democratic version of, of of Joe Manchin in the House because I'm I'm blanking on 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 some names but the but the kind of suburban woman you know, Alyssa Slotkin or um, mm -hmm. people like that and and yet that is not who we think about and that is not who is driving the agenda in the House obviously I think a big part of that is that the emphasis now is on how to communicate in an effective way how to say what Democratic core voters want to hear and not how to legislate in an effective way and so how to get an actual majority that can get something through with some Republicans and so as long as the focus is on message they're doing what they want to be doing but in the meantime, nothing actually gets done. Nothing gets changed. So let's let's 
talk a, a little bit about this pack, uh, packing the court uh, scheme that apparently is going to be uh, introduced today in the House to bring uh, the number of senators up from uh, nine, uh, number of uh, justices in the Supreme Court up from nine to thirteen, with the clear idea that it should this, uh, in some fantasy, get passed into law. There is no way because here's one case in which I don't know how on earth the Senate parliamentarian could rule that a change in the composition of the Supreme Court was a budget bill and therefore did not have to face the sixty vote uh, cloture rule uh, that budget bills kind of can evade but let's just say for the sake of argument that you know that this could somehow magically and mysteriously happen um you know we're just uh this is demented because uh, we're just in for a a period in which um republicans get back to house and then they grow it to 17 and then democrats get it and they grow it to 21 i mean there's no there's no limiting principle to this, if you are actually going to do this in order to get use your mar- your majority to push through a change in the size of the Supreme Court for the first time, you know, ever uh, after a, after the famous rejection of the court packing plan in 1937, which was deemed to be one of the greatest acts of partisan or overreach in American history, um, that uh, that that you're just uh, you're now you're now basically going to destroy this institution just right from the get go. Turn it into a you know just a thing where it turns into the New Hampshire uh, state assembly where there are you know twenty five hundred representatives for eleven people or something. You know. First of all, I mean you do have to say that the fact that Democrats didn't wait for Joe Biden's blue ribbon commission to produce its recommendations on court packing is just a little gauche. <laughs> So why do you think they're doing it? That's an interesting question. Well, I think it's another example of they're running to be able to say what they want to say on cable and have it be true. So the 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 point is just to make their messages somehow cohere with what's happening in Congress. And, you know, by happening, they just mean they've proposed it and they're going to vote on it. And I mean, this is so far from realistic in in the political situation they're in. That it really is just pure messaging. But even so, they've got to be held accountable for what it means. I mean, as you say, the logical conclusion of this is that you've got 435 Supreme Court justices, and we're going to sit here and wonder how they're not getting anything accomplished. Um, so let's let's go to the general <clears throat> House agenda, uh, which is different from the, the Senate agenda. Um, uh, the oddity of the House is with this incredibly narrow margin, nonetheless, Nancy Pelosi can apparently depend on Having no breakaways. I mean, I guess this is sort of similar to to the Republican uh, Congress. Of course, the rules governing the uh, the House are much different from the from the Senate, and uh, the, the the House Speaker is much more of a kind of dictator than certainly than the Senate Majority Leader is because of the rules that have been written to govern uh, each body. Um, but you would still think that uh, uh, that's a lot. Uh, the, the 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 cohesion, the partisan cohesion, is really kind of startling because it does represent an enormous break uh, in American history. Um, partisan cohesion was a th- has always been a thing. <clears throat> it was less necessary in the forty years the Democrats governed the House uninterruptedly from fifty four to ninety four, because often their majorities were so huge that they could afford to have 
many members not vote for the legislation they needed, they could get get a pat while getting the legislation through. You know, so you could you were much less. It was much less important that everybody be on the same page. Now, of course, they have to be on the same page even to begin to consider something. Um, but I understand that we're so divided and we're so divided in all of this, but um, where is the middle? Like, is, is it really the case that this body of 435 uh, elected uh, representatives literally has no middle? Like people who are going to say, I don't know if I can vote for like a gigantic, a huge tax increase in my district. Or, you know, I don't know if I can vote for court packing. Like, this is going to kill me next year. Well, John, you, you referenced this yesterday, I think, or maybe two days ago in the podcast. And I just talked about this in the pre-show. I want to bring it to the show um, where there was this pretty interesting uh, piece in Politico, political playbook, talking to a, uh, a Republican. I think it was a legislator. Maybe it was a staffer who gave this really great quote. And the quote went everywhere. And I'm going to paraphrase it. It was something to the extent of everything that Joe Biden wants to do is, is uh, characterized by the press as infrastructure or COVID relief. And everything we'd want to do is Jim Crow 2.0 or evil and the press eats it up and it's like living in this gas gaslit chamber of insanity. But it's working, he said. It's working because the public is buying it. And Politico went ahead to try to justify that claim by citing polling data. And the polling data they cite suggests that the public is to the tune of two thirds or something like that, supportive of things like gun control measures and unionization and that does not comport with the real world, and it hasn't for decades. Polling has always suggested that the public is really genuinely supportive of gun control, and in sort of you know kind of likes unionization in a, in a theoretical hypothetical sense. And in the real world, when you pursue gun control, you invite a political backlash that materializes almost every time. In the real world, we had this test case of unionizing an Amazon shop that the president himself lobbied for which failed in a spectacular fashion when the members voted against it. It's the sort of thing that creates this illusory impression that your agenda is, is really popular if you cite only polling data and ignore the real world results, which demonstrate that your agenda really isn't all that popular. And John, as you said, I think yesterday or two days ago, that all they have is polling data to justify what they're doing. And polling data has been really unreliable for a while now. I mean, we should talk about this because... I mentioned, Yuval, that uh, this uh, apology by five Democratic pollsters about having somehow misled their own, uh, the people who hired them last year because they overestimated the Democratic vote all over the place. Pew said that it has underrepresented Republicans and it's trying to figure out what to do. But, you know, on that same day, we have three polls of, of presidential approval. And they are all over the map. Morning Consult had Biden at 60% and Quinnipiac had Biden at 48. Now, I could see it bounce, you know, basically you say, oh, that's why you do poll averaging, right? You'd say you take 60, you take 48, you add together, you get 54. Maybe he's around 54 or something like that. But that's not supposed to happen, actually, because it's a very simple question. You're asking it using the same kind of techniques, random techniques. You're not supposed to have results that are that that you know that are that uh, um, different. And so, yeah, if I were a, a Democrat in the House, uh, I understand the PR value of saying Republicans like 
everything that we say. Republican, rank and file Republicans like everything we're saying, even if their politicians don't want to vote for it, which is nonsensical, by the way, which we can get to. But um, but uh, you could say it, but you probably shouldn't believe it when all the evidence suggests that you need to take this stuff with giant grains of salt. I mean, there was a there was a piece of data where it said something like, if you at, say to people in the Quinnipiac poll that you're going to use corporate taxes to pay for infrastructure, then they like it. But if you don't say that, maybe they like it less, but then they really like it. Well, what does that what does that mean? I mean, it's a bizarre first of all, it shifts of like, again, if you want to get it down into the, you know, the nitty-gritty, it shifts of like 20 people in a survey. It's not 25,000 people. It's not voters. You know, it's not like an aggregate election. And I, I understand. I think, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I, I think the irony here is that the Democrats are setting themselves up to lose the House in in the next election and win the Senate and win a bigger majority in the Senate. They've, they're, they're set up for a very good situation in 2022 in the Senate. They're not defending any seats in, in states that Trump won which is very unusual, and they're in a pretty good place to win a few seats and have an actual majority. But what they're doing here could easily cost them their margin in the House. I mean, even if their voters generally, even if American voters generally are okay with what they're up to, those 10 marginal districts that will mean this is a Republican House rather than a Democratic House, you can bet that those are districts where people are going to pay a price. And the striking thing, as you say, is that they're getting those members to go along with this. And I I think that has to do as not only with the absence of a middle exactly, but with the absence of meaningful factions within the parties at this point. In American history, you know, the political scientist Dan DeSalvo wrote a great book about this. In American history, there have always been intra-party factions so that some of the differences that you see represented as small parties in European parliaments are represented as parts of the party in, in, in the American Congress. And we've seen this as recently as the as as the the Republicans in the Bush years and the Obama years, but now neither party really has any factions in it. They're both very strangely cohesive and unified in Congress, and that makes it very hard both to reach across party lines and make deals, and it makes it very hard for the party leadership in Congress to know where the boundaries are, where their voters actually are, and where they're going to get where they're going to lose seats by doing the kinds of things that Nancy Pelosi is doing now. But she's pushing so hard in the direction of the party's activists that you just have to believe that these 10, 15 marginal districts are not going to put up with it. But Yuval, I have a question. Really, the the Republican Party has no factions within it? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we were sort of talking about how this we were witnessing beginnings of the kind of civil war in the party. I mean, that's 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 all done now. I, I'm not sure we were, but I would say in the congressional party, there's not even really the kind of um, the the kind of caucuses that you saw in a meaningful way ten years ago. Um, and and in a sense, in part, it's because the the parties come out of the Trump years with no policy agenda whatsoever. There there is nothing you could say if Republicans were in power, they'd be pushing this. I'm really just not sure what any of that list would look like right now. And that means that there's not a group of members who says, well, we'll trade you something for this. There are a few members trying, especially in the Senate. Mitt Romney keeps trying to make deals. 
and say, why, what if we put E-Verify together with an increase in the minimum wage? That's how the Senate used to work. But everybody else looks at him now and says, what? What, what kind of thing is that? And I, I think they're just confused about what it means to be a politician in a legislature right now. Look, this point you make about the parties containing factions is 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 integral to the American political experiment. So we have this very weird situation in which we have two parties uh, in the United States, and uh, and they 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 morph and shift in bizarre ways all the time. When I was growing up. Uh, as a, as, a, as a little kid, uh, the the South was uh, the South was a Democratic stronghold. Uh, there had not been a Republican politician who had won a race in Texas in a hundred years. You know, I mean, I whatever. I mean, there had you know, Texas is now one of the most Republican states in the country. Uh, though obviously it has House members, some Democratic House members. I mean, these things shift over time. Um, uh, but one of the things, one of the reasons that they shift over time is precisely that the faction, the uh, the parties are welcoming, were welcoming to people who moved over because the issue that was a particular concern to their district or their area or something like that, uh, they'd gotten crosswise of the national emphasis of the party. So, you know, f- uh, people forget, or maybe people don't even know who I'm talking about now, but, you know, Phil Graham was a Democrat, right? Uh, Richard Shelby was a Democrat. Uh, how many House members, uh, almost every Republican that you now look at and think, oh, he's a troglodyte, you know, da da da, was like a Democrat growing up in, uh, from the Deep South. Like they, they moved over the Republican Party for complicated reasons, and 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 things went the other way. You know, I mean, it's the classic case being, you know, I don't know, not that she was a representative, but you know, Hillary Clinton was a Goldwater girl who became a Democrat. These things shift over time because the issue sets shift over time, and um, and that is now becoming increasingly difficult. Like, what do you do if you are uh, you represent a suburban district? And all Democrats are going to want to talk about is, you know, I don't know, the 1619 project. You're like, well, that's not what I'm here for. I mean, not that they're talking about this. I just mean like that wokeness becomes like the central preoccupation of the National Party. And that is not the language that they speak in your district if you live in suburban Detroit. You know, if you live, if you serve in the suburbs of Detroit or, you know, I don't know, yeah. Any of these places, Des Moines, you know, that's not that's not what they're there for. But parties and party leadership used to it used to they would move heaven and earth to get defectors. That's the other. How much did Jim Jeffords get from the Democratic Party for switching sides, becoming an independent and caucusing with them, which then denied Republicans the majority in the Senate in two thousand and one? I do know. That the ask, his ask, and the Republican Party had gotten up to close to twenty billion dollars just to keep him there with some kind of earmark stuff for his state, and then he asked for a little more. And at that point, they said, "All right, forget it. We can't, you know, like your the price tag is too high." And then he went with the Democrats who had offered him other stuff. That was how important it was to get people. Granted, that was a real. That was like one guy tipping the balance. But people got things. They would get good, get star leading positions on 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 committees. They would get earmarks for their district, stuff like that. 
just to shift because that was part of the game, right? Was getting people to move onto your side. And now it's sort of like the opposite. Like uh, you would be suspicious. Like you'd be horribly suspicious of anybody who changed their changed their 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 play. Like that guy in New Jersey, right? Who was who sort of got Trumpy, but he stayed a, a Democrat. Like they wanted to beat him. You know, they didn't want to keep him because they wanted to purify. Anyway, I, I think in some ways there there is a change of issue sets going on under the surface. Republicans are changing their minds about the role of government, about corporations. In some ways, the Democrats are too. But the political infrastructure isn't there to enable that to be expressed. And I think part of the reason is that the parties now don't have the the leverage they used to have. And so their incentives matter less. The incentives that the parties have are to build broad tents, like you say, to appeal to that suburban woman who probably would vote Republican. But if you put the right Democrat up, there are reasons why she'd prefer that person. That's what a national party does. They have to elect people in Mississippi and in Oregon. And so they've got to find a way to be both of those things. But the national parties don't move money around anymore. They don't select candidates anymore. And so you've got candidates who are on their own and in their own particular districts, they just don't have the ability to form these kind of meaningful factions within the party that would actually be a durable group that could then negotiate with other groups in the party and even in the other party. And so we've reached a point where that just doesn't get expressed. And like you say, it's just, it's all suspicion. If you don't just, if you don't carry, if, if you don't agree with everything that the, that the, that the party activists want to do, then you just get kicked out rather than saying, well, this is the guy who's going to get us the majority so we can do that stuff. And so they all hate, you know, like I said, Joe Manchin, who is the only reason that, I mean, Joe Manchin is in a state that Donald Trump won by 30 points. 39 points. Yeah, almost 40. So how are they supposed to have any Senate majority if they can't win in those kinds of places? And yet what they're doing is undermining the ability to do that. And both parties do this now. There was a brief reckoning with this sort of thing after 2020, right? I mean, they, there was a sentiment abroad that the defund the police movement was absolutely handicapping and handed Republicans seats in South Florida. They didn't expect weren't even competitive. Uh, and now that's that's sort of went out the window. It seemed like there was consensus around that sort of thing, that, that progressive utopianism, this meliorist tendency on the left uh, really cost them, and now it's it's just gone. Uh, the problem. Oh, go, go ahead. Well, I'm just wondering to to what extent um, Biden sort of stomped on that reckoning by um, immediately sort of uh, going with the activists himself unapologetically. I mean, I think there's a lot to that. There's also the problem that the virtue of activism in general is that activists can always do things they can they 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 have they have uh, in their pocket they have more money in their pocket than they know what to do with and they can spend it like sailors uh and prudent cautious people don't want to do much they or they don't want to do less so you got all these all this pushing and then what they're saying is don't push me but it's not like they're pushing back with something else the the people who complained at that famous leaked uh, telephone call, where where they said you 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 know you were killing us with that to fund the police stuff, where's their police reform bill that targets this but does that but is that and says you know we you know we love the police bill 
as opposed to their defund the police bill. They they haven't written one. They don't have it because that's their impulse is to say, just stop talking about it. And the activists have no reason to stop talking about it. Their their people like it. Their districts seem to like it. They can do it forever. <laughs> right? That's so um you know, the kind of the sphinx, the politician who is Sphinx life, you're John McCain, and it's 2017, and it, you get to play this game where you let everybody guess until the last second whether you're going to vote up or down to kill Obamacare, right? We play that game. That's gone. Like, they'll never, I mean, it won't, it's not gone for, nothing's ever gone forever. But that was the last gasp of that, you know, high wire, What's going to happen at the last minute? Like, Yuval, you were, I think, involved in this when they were doing Medicare Part D right. in, the, in the House in 2003, the first, you know, expansion of an entitlement since the Great Society. And uh, Republicans in the House really didn't want to vote for it. And then what did Tom DeLay have to do? He had to stop the clock. Was it like a five-second count? <laughs> Suddenly, it's like, a, it's like a timeout in a football game. It went on for three and a half hours while he while they twisted arms to just get enough votes to get it all over. You didn't know what was going to happen. Am I right? You were there. Yeah, like- and as you say, I mean, what the, what happened, that, I mean, they held a vote open all night, and those members in that moment could just ask for whatever they wanted in that bill and get it. And now I wonder if members like that would know what to ask for. They're, they're not really in the business of having an agenda that says, what I need for my district is this. So if you want me on this bill, I need the bill to have this. Uh, it's it's not really how a lot of them operate. Obviously, there's still a few of this kind of member left. But for the most part, they they need to have a consistent message online and on cable. And if you get in the way of that with something complicated, like you're going to vote for a bill that on the whole you don't like, but that gives your district something you need, um, they don't know what to do with it. A lot of younger members have no idea how to process that kind of politics. I mean, it's fascinating that they don't, you know, part of this is like, you know, the whole thing of people need to learn civics and they don't know American history and, and all of that. But um, we were talking about this, talked about it yesterday. It's in the, the piece I'm, I've written for commentary that closes today in the new May issue. Uh, here we have the Democrats pushing their agenda forward in this, you know, really, really, bold fashion uh and they're gonna eventually they're gonna get some for, version of this infrastructure bill they will have spent four trillion dollars extra dollars uh in 2021 that they hadn't been spent before which is again like yeah it happened a couple of times it happened after 9 11 it happened after the financial meltdown uh they'd already spent close to two trillion dollars on coronavirus relief in 2020 this is four trillion dollars of new money that's crazy. Like that doesn't ordinarily happen or ever happen. It never ha- has happened. Right. So uh, they're pushing and pushing and pushing. They're going to have this money like it's the great society. But as we were talking about, uh, so here's the details in 1964 in 1965 is when we got uh, Medicare. We got various other, we got uh, uh, various other aspects of the great society, eight to families with dependent children, some other major bills that ended up costing many trillions of dollars over the subsequent decades. Lyndon Johnson won that election with 61.1% of the vote. Joe Biden won this election with 51.3%. Democrats came out of the 64 election with 68 seats in the Senate. So that's not only does that overcome the 60-vote cloture margin, 
but in theory overcomes the two thirds margin that would allow them even to throw Lyndon Johnson out if they didn't like him. Uh, and in the house, the house of representatives where there is a six seat majority right now in 1960 at, after the election was over in 1964, Democrats had a margin of 155 seats. Six to 155, 50 to 68, 61, you know, 61% to 51%. And the Democrats are spending $4 trillion uh, in this way. That's, that's new. It's bold. It's, it's very, uh, there is no theory of American politics that suggests that this should be happening except for the kinds of theories that you yourself have promulgated um, in your, in, you know, in your, in your books about this kind of collapse of the institutions and the mediating institutions that protect us from these kinds of wild shifts. It's very bizarre. And I have to say one thing that strikes me about it is the absence of Joe Biden as a figure in the internal debates about whether this should be done. Uh, One way to see that is Biden as as Abe says, just turned in the direction of the activists. And I think in some ways he's certainly done that. But he's also just absent. There's not really, he, the, the mark of his personality is not so far evident in his administration. It is being run by the activists, but he's not actually out there fanning them along or saying, this is what I want. Generally speaking, people working in an administration, you know, two levels down among political appointees can say, if the president was in my job, I know what he would be doing. There was very little question about that in the Reagan administration and the Obama administration. I, I think in this moment, it's not at all easy to say if 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 Joe Biden were in my job and I'm, I don't know, assistant secretary of HHS, I know what he would be doing. I know what the activists would be doing. But Biden is a very kind of weak and absentee figure so far. Now, it's very early. But it's not clear at all if this is him or if he's decided to just let it happen or if he's somehow being 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 overwhelmed by the power of the activists or the new dynamics of politics that he's not used to. I think it's a very odd situation for a president. Uh, you know, we could speculate on this forever, and there are like various lines of speculation, right? One is uh, he's been sold on this idea that he can be a transformational president and that mm-hmm. they've... They, they, that uh, the, the Republicans changed the rules, meaning that uh, ordinarily you could negotiate and do it, but you can't do that anymore with them. And so you got to do what you can do. And in fact, if you're going to do what you can do, you might as well go, f- go for broke, uh, literally <laughs> go for broke because uh, there's no reason you're just negotiating with yourself if you don't, because you're going to pass whatever legislation you're going to pass with reconciliation. So you might spend $4 trillion as if you're going to spend $1 trillion if you don't really care. Right there's that, so he's been sold on the idea that yep. he can be transformational, or he doesn't care, or you know he's senile, uh, or he's looking at the numbers and things and saying this is looking pretty good for me. I don't see why we should. Um, I don't. Wh- where's where? Where's the pushback? And that isn't. That's the point I think about these majorities is if Joe if Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema are the only people who are who are pushing back you know, in American politics, in the Democratic Party against him. It's the same thing. What motivation does he have to to, to, to put up a hand and say, stop? Like, he's not feeling it. You know, he's not feeling any pressure to moderate them. 
and that's interesting. I mean, I just, I, I don't, I don't really understand it. It's not, uh, you know, and it, people say like, well, it's the media, but you know, again, I, I hate to sound like an old guy talking like an old guy, but you know, the media were, were worse in the early eighties than they are now. I mean, they were, they were much more uniformly, I don't know. I mean, they were, you have no idea how, how the coverage of how bad the coverage of Reagan was. You have no idea if you didn't grow up during it, how negative the coverage of Reagan was and the, and the entire Reagan agenda, particularly given how successful it proved. Um, so it's not the media because the media have been have been ever thus they they weren't nice to Reagan they were horrible to Reagan and he got things through anyway because he won a massive landslide both in both elections he won 40 states in 1980 the republicans won 12 seats in the senate the political parties in washington looked at this and said we better go in his direction because we don't know what the hell is going on and nothing that we did worked that was the other thing democrats had a crisis of faith in their own solutions for things. And Reagan came in like an activist with with a solution, right? Which was tax cuts, defense spending increases, and and uh, and policies at the Fed to restrain inflation. Um, but the, so he had this mandate, and then he really had a mandate after 84. And Biden doesn't have that mandate. So ordinarily, if you either have it or you don't have it, but apparently in Plato's, in 2021's Plato's Cave, you have it simply by asserting it, I guess. Uh, let me take a break for a second and talk to you, yes, about our good friends at Bambi. Because look, when you're running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries ain't cheap. Average of 70000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance, all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. Look, you didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary, spelled B-A-M-B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Um, so the other aspect of uh, of the uh, Congress, uh, members being weak, uh, Congress being because members want it to be, is this platforming effect that you that you uh, talk about, Yuval, um, and, and that of course um, heightens culture war issues and uh, you know and and uh, telegenic uh, confrontational issues uh, over over sort of the boring nuts and bolts of uh, of making practical policy, um, and uh, we see this at work. Uh, we're now seeing this at work not only in domestic policy on the you know hot issue of the last year. Uh, white supremacy, but we are now seeing it playing a role in foreign policy in a pretty horrifying way. Um, the newly minted UN uh, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas Greenfield, uh, a uh, career uh, diplomat uh, who was Assistant Secretary for African Affairs in the Obama administration, um, gave a speech yesterday to the National Action Network. Uh, that would be Al Sharpton's uh, group. It's a virtual convention. Uh, 
And uh, I'm just going to read the quote. When we raise issues of equity and justice at the global scale, we have to approach them with humility. We have to acknowledge that we are an imperfect union and have been since the beginning. Every day we strive to make ourselves more perfect and more just in a diverse country like ours. That means committing to do the work. It means learning more and understanding each other. Because, as she uh, then said, I've seen for myself how the original sin of slavery weaved a white supremacy into our founding documents and principles. Uh, This is something that she intends to say and represent uh, with the Human Rights Council at the uh, UN in February, which uh, the United States had withdrawn from. This, of course, is the famous council that has had among its presidents Libya, China, uh, I mean that you know basically, if you are a totalitarian uh, dictatorship or or, uh, or a country that uniquely uh, harasses and denies human rights to a significant majority, uh, you're going to get the presidency or the leadership of this council, and uh, it is the apparently intention of the uh, UN ambassador uh, to go there and say that America is a bad country uh, that has uh, that has white supremacy or, you know, racial injustice we woven into its very fabric. This is a new one on me. I mean, I've seen a lot, I've heard a lot. There's been a lot of bad stuff. There's some stuff happened at the UN, at the conference on, on women in China in 1994-95, where the United States went to apologize in front of the world for its mistreatment of women, uh, places where, you know, in front of countries that were, you know, who, officially had official practices of clitoridectomy and stuff like that and other things like that. But to have the UN ambassador say that uh, she is going to take up these issues uh, on the human rights with humility because we we have white supremacy woven into our fabric. I think that's new. Yuval, does that strike you as new? I mean, maybe maybe it's not new, but it, it's still bad, but... I think so. I mean, look, especially at the United Nations, which is so often an arena for the worst kind of hypocrisy on these questions, as you say, the United States just has to stand up for itself. And that is the job of the UN ambassador a lot of the time, is to stand up for the country, to stand up for what we believe in and what we do. And to say in particular that that racism and white supremacy are woven into our founding documents. Our founding documents are the, the, the reasons why ultimately racism and white supremacy has been a hypocrisy for the United States. That is, it's statesmen like Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King were able to say, look at these founding documents and see how much better we're supposed to be. They were also the legal instruments by which those sins were extirpated. Right. And the, I mean, the idea that that is what you would point to and say, this is where we fail and to do that by just giving ground to the hypocrisy that already pervades at the UN and giving them the arguments that they want to make against us, uh, I, I think that's new too. Right. I mean, that is. Well, she, she, sorry. No, I mean, I mean, what what she said simply is a paraphrasing of what every terrible actor uh, at the UN Security Council has said about us, about the US, whenever um, um, we try to assert ourselves. You know, the idea: who are we to speak on these issues? given this charge against us. So she's, she's, you know. Yeah, you had somebody like um, the economist Jeff Sachs was on BBC where he was, you know, tasked with taking up the charges against China, um, which include forced labor, ethnic cleansing, 
the abuse of religious minorities in camps, forcing them to violate the religious uh, beliefs. Um, that's the sort of thing he felt like you couldn't really comment on because of our own past and our own sins, um, echoing essentially this statement by the United Nations ambassador. And it's they, they perceive it to be a species of enlightenment, but it's precisely the opposite. It forces you to abandon even elementary discretion to make this case. You can't, you can't justify this claim without ad adopting a very generalized blanket view of how the United States has conducted itself over the last 200 years, and to assume that there really has been no progress over the course of those two centuries, which is just nakedly false. Um, and, and quite offensive. But this is Biden administration policy. Joe Biden gave a speech in February where he said the systemic racism isn't going to be just a function of one department in our administration. It is the business of the whole of government and all our federal policies and institutions. And in the terms of foreign policy, it would, quote, make us a more credible partner because these efforts to shore up our foundations. It has had precisely the opposite effect insofar as it is validating the arguments, the the false and uh, and craven arguments made by our political adversaries abroad, that only seek to undermine our own uh, values in order to justify their human rights abuses. So you're just really shoring up their justification for their abuses with this self-flagellating. I got to read to you a quote from Pat Moynihan uh, at the UN in 1975. Pat Moynihan got his job as the UN ambassador uh, through the pages of Commentary Magazine, his article, The United States in Opposition, written uh, just uh, as uh, while he was uh, ambassador to India in the uh, uh, Nixon Ford administrations, um, published, edited, published by my father uh, in, in 1975, got, uh, uh, got him appointed as UN ambassador. And of course, he gave that famous speech uh, about the Zionism as racism resolution that propelled him into the Senate in 1976. But here is what he said on this very subject, quote, am I embarrassed to speak for a less than perfect democracy? Not one bit. Find me its equal. Do I suppose there are societies which are free of sin? No, I don't. Do I think ours is on balance incomparably the most hopeful set of human relations the world has? Yes, I do. Have we done obscene things? Yes, we have. How did our people learn about them? They learned about them on television, in the newspapers. That is, I was a Democrat, was working for a Republican administration. Um, that was, that is exactly the right thing to say about the United States at the UN and everywhere, which is, are we imperfect? Yes, Find me our equal. Is there any society that's free of sin? No. <laughs> is our constitution supposedly woven with white supremacy, supposedly woven into its very fabric, uh, the greatest uh, constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the greatest act of a human liberation in human history? Yes, they are. <laughs> and the notion that we need to go around proving that we can be moral partners with moral pygmies, with countries that do not even have, cannot even, you know, claim to pay lip service to the very things that we have already apologized for, 
and understand to have been uh, evils in our in our own past is just uh, it's it, 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 it's uh, it makes you heart sick. Um, I just want to point out something else here. You know, we've talked about uh, what this uh, does. Uh, you know, um, from the perspective of our antagonists, um, what does it do from the perspective of like you know the protesters in Hong Kong, right? Uh, they're they're the ones that are um, you know singing the the U.S. national anthem as they as they protest uh, um, uh, Beijing, right? Uh, and 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 the great model that they're looking up to is self-flagellating uh, before the world stage. Terrible, terrible thing. Uh, everything old is new again. This was exactly the fight that helped uh, uh, give birth to neoconservatism. It was the fight of commentary in the 1970s. It was Pat Moynihan's fight, and we're about to we're having this fight all over again in in you know in different in in different forms and uh and uh it has much the same quality which is that uh for some of us reading this stuff seeing this stuff uh not living uh in the bubble of people for whom this has become re- religion or doctrine you sit there and you go have i gone crazy am i taking crazy pills you actually this is what you think of this country uh, as far as I know, you're a black woman and you're the ambassador to the UN. Doesn't the very fact that you're the ambassador to the UN give the lie to every word that is coming out of your mouth? Or does that not matter? Like, I'm looking at you. I'm hearing what you're saying. You are disproving it by your existence. And am I taking crazy? You described it as a tenet of a faith, which renders it unfalsifiable. Yeah. Well, of course, and that's one of the reasons, by the way, because it's not a faith. In the end, these are the real world policies and things come out of it, and therefore they are testable. <laughs> uh, they're testable. The doctrine may not be testable, but the but the results, uh, the results are 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 testable. In this argument that I, this are this article that I've I've written, which uh, should go up today or tomorrow on on the commentary website, the era of big government is back. I talk about how. It's been 25 years since Bill Clinton said the Arabic government is over in his State of the Union speech. Exactly, almost exactly 25 years. Three, Biden was sworn in three three days uh, shy of the 25th anniversary of Clinton's State of the Union speech. And that speech, which was designed to save his presidency so that he could win a second term, represented a surrender uh, on the key democratic ideas that had uh, governed the party for 60 years. Primarily that... It was the role of government to make changes in American society and basically bring them, you know, sort of mass educate the American people with these changes and sort of bring them to the people. Uh, I describe it as being uh, the, the speech as being, uh, you know, uh, Tocqueville, you know, sort of a bastardization of Tocqueville by, by way of Reagan. Um, and uh, who supported that speech? Who was one of the 24 Democrats out of the 48 Democrats in the Senate to vote for the Welfare Reform Bill of 1996? Uh, which was the key element of this strategy, saying the Arabic government is over, uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden, one of 20, who said, we must move from the culture of welfare to the culture of work on the floor of the Senate in 1996. What did he do last month in the uh, in the stimulus bill? Removed work uh, and time requirements on direct cash payments for welfare for for families. But you know, that was really interesting because they did it very quietly. Nobody talked about it. They didn't tout it. They didn't say they were going to do it. 
there's there's something there in the recesses of their subconscious that you think suggests that they know this stuff isn't going to be super popular. Well, otherwise they would have made it a big a big thing about it. They would have talked about it. It's not only that it wouldn't be or would be super popular. And this is also like the discussions in the Democratic Party about crime relating to the crime bill that Joe Biden shepherded and then felt he had to apologize for. It's not popular or not popular. These things worked. I mean, they were like they unambiguously worked. The welfare rolls in the United States shrunk by half. Um, employment exploded once once it was made clear that you only had two years to get a federal welfare benefits and that they were time limited. That you had to show that you were trying to get work. And the crime bill, proof of the pudding is in the eating. We had the crime bill. We had a thirty year drop in crime that is now being reversed. Uh, uh, while while all of the tenets of the crime bill are being reversed in states like New York and 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 Pennsylvania and other places where the reversals of the policies are having immediate real world disastrous effects. Um Abe, just uh, just uh, take a we're not, I I have another ad to read, but I just want you to talk a little bit about what happened to you yesterday on the subway cuz it's interesting cuz the New York City subways are one of the great success stories of the crime drop. Uh, it was a, a terrible, dirty, graffiti-ridden place. Lots of crime in the late ninety, er, late eighties, early nineties. Tourists were getting killed there. People stopped coming to New York because they knew that the subways were unsafe and all of that. Right before the pandemic, the subways. The problem with the subways was they were too crowded. They were too popular. They were too busy. Six and a half million people riding them every day. There weren't enough trains. The disaster was a catastrophic success. Because people felt safe, people felt they could use them at all times of the day or night, and the system couldn't handle the success. So yesterday, you get on the subway. Yesterday, I get on the subway at around 5 p.m. Uh, in Midtown, on the west side. Uh, get it to one car. It was you know moderately crowded, not, not exactly empty. And uh, there's one guy sprawled out on the floor, out of it, uh, on something, you know, you, you never know what. And the, the doors close. And then uh, walking through the car from the other direction, and this is the one that's, this is a brand new one on me, um, was a guy selling tasers and uh, demonstrating them, you know, making with that, making that unmistakable uh, and alarming zapping sound. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Which is also, you know, just on a safety uh, level, very unsafe because the car is rocking around and he's walking through the car, zapping the the taser. but, you know, for sale, a weapon. So, uh, so, so with a colleague, we made the decision to switch cars at the next stop, as you do when there's a, something unpleasant on your car. And we go to the next car, the next stop, and the doors close. It always happens sort of, you always you always seal yourself in. It's too late by the time you realize there's an issue. And uh, the doors close. And then there's a guy at the end of that car who's violently hurling himself uh at the at uh, the doors opposite each each opposite door, um, so you know I, I I put this up on social media and I told people and there's a lot of like ah oh, it's New York City New York's back you know um, I've been taking the subway since I was a kid regularly and yeah you always see homelessness and you see drug use and you see you know it ebbs and flows never seen anyone selling tasers uh, that is that to me is is actually the the significantly um, more frightening element here. And also the inescapability of it, that you go from one car to the next and there's just no, this is just the way it is. 
And of course, a lot of this has been done in the name of compassion. There was a decision made, explicit decision by the de Blasio administration, not to interfere with the uh, goings, uh, comings and goings of uh, of the um, people of no fixed address in and around the subway system who were rousted out uh, in prior administrations, uh, taken to forcibly removed, taken to shelters, to uh, whatever, um, on the grounds that, of course, what they were doing was making the experience of uh, daily transportation in a city that relies on it um, unsupportable and unsustainable and unlivable, uh, and that the mass of people required this kind of uh, order uh, in order to have an experience that was uh, that was uh, tolerable. And um, uh, there's a very interesting piece in the New York Post uh, editorial page today by, by Ed Mullins, who says the great danger now is that we're going to come back from the pandemic, and not just in New York. New York's it's New York paper, so it's about New York, but um, that that we have uh, we have seen a kind of uh, increase uh, in base criminality in cities all over the country as a result of what's happened during the pandemic. And the question is: Is that the new normal? Are we now? Are we building? Is is it? We're going to return to normal, but we're the normal is now going to include a twenty percent increase in crime in cities, which is about where we are. And it's not just the pandemic, but I've said I've always wondered in reading about the misgovernment of America in the late '60s and into the '70s, just how could they have done that? And I think we're learning now what it looks like in real time, where it's just one decision after another made in a kind of consequence-free political environment, and we're going to look back on this and wonder how could that have happened. I mean, I, I think there was a naivete excuse then that does not exist now. I mean, that is to say naivete or kind of like, you know, starry-eyed idiocy, but starry-eyed nonetheless, which is that some of these things, some of these new policing rules or uh, sympathy for victims as opposed to, you know, as opposed to sympathy for criminals, uh, talking about root causes, all of that, uh, providing enormous levels of social supports because once you did that, you could turn people away from the life they were living to a different kind of life and all of that. And and that, and that uh, we had to try it somehow. There was some sense in which <clears throat> this country was inevitable <clears throat> that this country was going to try compassion and uh, as a strategy, as a kind of general strategy. And uh, the reason that now is different from then is that we saw what happened. And there's been a great forgetting about what happened. This is one of the reasons when... After when when in the 2013 mayoral election in New York, a lot of people kept saying, you're, you're crazy. Look the way these people are talking. They're going to return us back to the bad old days. And then people realized that something like 75% of the people who were going to vote in the election either had not been living in New York before 1994 <clears throat> or hadn't been born yet or anything like that, had no personal experience of what it was like to live in this city or live in a city or a world in which crime was the number one issue <clears throat> for domestic daily life. <clears throat> it's an amazing thing to think about. Like, we spent a generation and a half not thinking about crime. I grew up 30 years thinking about very little else than crime when I was walking down a street. I lived in three cities. I lived in New York. I lived in Chicago. I lived in Washington, D.C., and in the back of your mind was a running monologue. Is that safe? Is that guy across the street? Is Am I in trouble? Is it dark? Can I park here because I got to go around the corner and there's no 
light? Should I walk in the street instead of on the sidewalk because I'm on a block that has a lot of doorways and no doormen? On and on and on. And none of that, there's none of that anymore, right? I mean, it's all gone and it's coming back. And people, I think that's how uh, people have that experience. You know what else? And so it makes you very stressed to think about this. And wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket-sized guide that helped you sleep, focus, act, be better, and help do with your stress? There is. If you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. It's the daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations and an easy-to-use app, one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. Overwhelmed, Headspace is a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. You deserve to feel happier. Headspace's meditation made simple. 600,000 five-star reviews, 60 million downloads. Go to headspace.com slash commentary for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations. This is the best deal offered right now. Go to headspace.com slash commentary today. Yuval, uh, what do you ha- what are you working on? Well, I'm uh, I, I I run a little shop at AI that's focused on the health of our constitutional system, among other things. And in the coming months, we're working on trying to make some sense of our debates about election reform, uh, trying to push Congress to change some of the kinds of incentives we've been talking about here. So both in my own work and in the work of other scholars there, that'll be a big focus for us. We have the sense that we're in a moment that's a little bit like where the right was in the 70s about the courts, where we have to think very fundamentally about what these institutions are for and therefore how they ought to change and that there are opportunities there. But it's also, as we've talked about, a very challenging time. So that's a lot of where my head is now. Right. Um, And uh, uh, it's an amazing, a lot of amazing people you got there. Um, working with you and around you and, uh, and at national affairs, your, uh, quarterly, uh, magazine. Um, I commend to everybody the book of time to build. That's Yuval's most recent book, uh, which does detail this question of the transformation of the, of, of American politics from uh, a molder, uh, of politicians into a platform for politicians and how and why and what means we can use to reverse this this trend. And uh, we will have our May issue up uh, in the next day or so uh, featuring that piece of mine. I talked about Jim Meggs on infrastructure, Matt Continetti on Biden's gamble, um, uh, a lot of other really great stuff, including former AI intern Tal Fortgang's review of Benjamin Friedman's look at uh, Adam Smith. Um, so uh, many other things. So uh Yuval, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. As ever, and for Abe Noah and the absent Christine Rosen, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.